Right now on Matter of Fact, are you better informed than you were four years ago? It will go away, just stay calm. What happens when voters can't tell facts from fiction? If something is false, you call it false and you think that's gonna solve it, but that's not working. Plus, time to move the hose line up. Low visibility. Armageddon, it's bad. And this is just one of the hot spots. Unimaginable wildfires change a way of life, <laughs> leaving whole communities desperate for a solution. Everybody's seen a burnt down house, no one's seen a burnt down like town. And how this determined mother of two is mounting a bold Olympic comeback. People keep asking me, why are you doing this? I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Misinformation and disinformation, these words are often used interchangeably. Misinformation is false information that's spread regardless of intent to mislead, and that happens every day in our lives. We mishear something or misremember details and then share them with someone. But disinformation is deliberately misleading or biased information, manipulated narrative, or facts, propaganda. So intent is the difference between the two. And with social media fueling the spread of disinformation, how can voters know fact from fiction? One step is through fact-checking, which has also been the target of disinformation campaigns. So we set out to get the facts about fact-checkers. I'm Angie Drobnik-Holin. I'm the editor-in-chief of PolitiFact. We're fact-checkers who are following the 2020 campaign very closely. We're independent, nonpartisan journalists. So our agenda is to give people information that they can trust. Ask yourself, is this something that's likely to come up at the debate? We look at what the candidates have said. We look at which things are viral online. And we try to make a decision about what people really need to know about today. So we ask the speaker for their evidence. We look in fact-checking archives. We talk to experts. We review documents. And then at the end of that process, we decide on a rating. The ratings are true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, false, and pants on fire. Every rating has a definition, and three editors come together to vote on each rating. We fact check a lot of claims off of social media, so hoaxes, conspiracy theories, pranks that confuse people. We recently fact checked whether The Simpsons TV show predicted the coronavirus, and we found no, it did not. That it was pants on fire. Someone had taken an image from The Simpsons and written the coronavirus into the scene. When people see things that are wrong on the internet, their best move is to just open another tab and look, Google what they just found, and see if there's a fact check on it. There's this old saying that our favorite messenger can be wrong and our least favorite messenger can be right. And people really need to use their critical thinking and look through the evidence and see if it makes sense to them. What happens when voters view facts through a partisan lens, filtering through the facts they want to see and hear and dismissing the facts they don't agree with? Then factor in social media. How does that all shape an election? Whitney Phillips is assistant professor at Syracuse University who teaches media literacy, myths and disinformation and political communication. Professor Phillips, nice to have you. Let's start with the phrases disinformation and misinformation. You've been studying this kind of thing for quite a while. And what did you start seeing, let's say, in 2016 in that election? 
the thing about 2016 that was most striking and that I studied most directly was issues of amplification. So whether something was misinformation, so false or misleading information inadvertently spread or disinformation, false and misleading information deliberately, purposefully spread, when journalists or everyday people would respond to it, um, even to debunk it, that would amplify the mis and disinformation. And it would make it, it would give it sort of a longer tail, essentially. It would allow it to travel more places to more audiences, to more unpredictable effects. It seems to me that it's not just online, but um, you can definitely see even interviews uh, on camera that people do where the whole point is to have one phrase that gets elevated. In a way, it's about making something not just go, go viral, but turn it into a meme. You can take an hour-long interview, it then is reduced down to the five-second soundbite, and then it spins off into a million different directions. And when that is weaponized, that can have really profound consequences for public discourse. Do you think uh, social media platforms, let's pick Facebook, for example, could do a better job? I mean, is the technology there to actually pluck out what is disinformation, what is false, what is a false narrative intentionally, and shut it down? So you look at social media platforms, especially Facebook, there are absolutely enormous logistic challenges and labor challenges to moderating those kinds of platforms. So I'm not saying that moderation is as simple as flipping a switch. It's not that. But when you see persistently over years the same kinds of problematic, harmful, hateful, dehumanizing content allowed, and not just allowed, but incentivized to spread, recommended to other users, it, it, it be really begins to look like that content is, if not embraced and enjoyed by Facebook, then tolerated. I'm beginning to come to the realization that facts just don't matter to some people. And uh, what do you recommend? What do you think is the right way to to navigate that? Well, I think that, so if 2016 was the election of amplification, um, 2020 has proven itself to be an election of the limitations of facts, that facts are absolutely critical, but facts and facts alone are not enough to correct some of the worst, most insidious, most harmful um, information that is spreading around online. And you can look at uh, you know, far-right conspiracy theories like QAnon or the deep state or any other kinds of uh, COVID denialism, um, those theories, even after all of the fact-checking, all of the debunking, all of the careful responses by journalists who are doing their best, those theories have not just not gone away, they've actually become more prevalent. So we need to essentially relearn our relationship or reimagine our relationship with facts. How do you reimagine a relationship with facts? I mean, I don't even know what that means. So most people think that when they Google things online and when they start seeing results, that that's reflective of objective reality, but that's not. That's reflective of what the algorithms are feeding people. And so if you're a QAnon believer or you're QAnon curious, the algorithm kind of can tell that based on the things you search and what you do. So it's gonna continue giving you things that corroborate what you're already looking to find. Whitney Phillips, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Next on Matter of Fact, Paradise Lost. Imagine, you know, moving 14 times because everything burned. How do you rebuild your life when you live in a wildfire zone? Plus, tracking the timeline of a COVID-19 vaccine. Then, is there life next door to Earth?
And why fans are flipping out over this retired mom's moves on the mat. With wildfires, the direct effects are always the worst, the deaths, the destruction, and that's what we're seeing on the West Coast, where fires decimated parts of California, Oregon, and Washington, killing at least 35 people and smothering some neighborhoods with some of the worst air on the planet right now. The images of raging fires, skies filled with ash and miles of scorched earth are just haunting. But once the smoke clears, another image will emerge. Miles and miles of burned out homes. Recovery will take years. Paradise, California knows the anguish and the grief. In November of 2018, a wildfire raced through the town. It killed 85 people and destroyed just about everything in its path. Their story of trying to rebuild is one that will be repeated up and down the West Coast. I mean, everybody's seen a burnt down house. No one's seen a burned down like town. I think that if you watched a movie that had the end of times, that's what this town feels to me like now. Like the apocalypse happened. It's just horrific. Paradise, California, a town stopped in its tracks last November 8th. The sounds of Charles and Rachel Rogers' life crunching under their feet. Like most here, they lost everything. Wow, the iPod. With no renter's insurance, they're starting from scratch in Yuba City. It's the real simple things too, like our walls in our new place are bare. We have no pictures, we have nothing. Most of those here now are cleanup crews. From above, their work seems insurmountable. Miles and miles of ash and rubble. Six months after the fire, fewer than 4,000 of the 11,000 properties have been cleared. And that's just the first step. You have to clean their property. You have to sample the soil. You have to make sure they've got water, that their sewage system is still operating. Um, they've got power before we can even begin to think about putting people back on their property. Bedroom lamp. Coming up here again today is not any easier. It's just devastation. It's heartbreaking. Woody and Debbie Stern say they don't have the time to wait for the remains of their dream home to be hauled off. They've already bought a new house in Red Bluff. I couldn't live here again, just surrounded with those memories and, and the way it used to be, because it's not going to be that way anymore. For those left behind, daily struggles. The water in paradise, still not safe to drink. Nice, how much water? Tammy Spurlock's home was destroyed. She's living in her mom's house, one of only a few in the neighborhood still standing. I, I call it being in the bubble, but you know, as soon as you go outside, reality hits that you know this is where we live now, and so it's difficult. Tammy, a realtor, bought the burned-out lot behind her mom's house and plans to build there once it's cleared. The state says that could take up to 18 months. It takes you know nine months to build a home. You know, so 18 months plus nine, so we're at two and a half, three years. That's a long time to be in limbo. Number one is safety. Make it safer. At town listening sessions, concern those who want to move back won't be able to afford the cost to rebuild. Surveys, permits, and talk of new safer building codes. Many here were underinsured. You just keep going. You have to. 
But Mayor Jody Jones acknowledges paradise will likely never be the same. We're trying to do everything we can, but we cannot build people's homes for them or give them the money to build their homes. And I know that is hard, very hard. Not everyone will come back to paradise. Joan says the town is applying for federal grants to help subsidize some of the rebuilding costs. And every day, more paradise businesses are reopening. Thomas Sinclair's auto body shop is up and running. As long as I can pay the bills and not go under, um, I'll, I'll stick it out. Sticking it out, surrounded by the reminders of what was lost here and finding optimism in what paradise could one day become. When you think about this two-bedroom place that you're going to build right behind your mom's, do you sort of feel hopeful and optimistic that paradise will come back? I think um, it'll come back one home at a time. It'll be beautiful again, and I think if you, um, you know, have a little hope, you know, it, you'll see it. In Paradise, California, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Next. A twist of fate and the Olympics postponed. Will it give this retired gymnast time to launch a comeback? We're going to push the boundaries. She still has something else to give. Plus, what would stop you from getting a COVID-19 vaccine once it's ready? When it comes to gymnastics, Simone Biles, widely considered to be the best in the sport, is also considered old at the young age of 23. Well, now a fellow gymnast wants to shatter that narrative. Chelsea Memel of Wisconsin wants to launch a return to the sport at the age of 32. She's a three-time world champion. She won a silver medal at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, despite breaking her foot three days into training. And now, 12 years later, with her coach, who's also her dad, she has her sights set on the Tokyo Olympics. People keep asking me, why are you doing this? Why are you doing gymnastics again? Why are you training again? You're 32, you're married, you have two children. I love gymnastics. That's the reason I'm doing it. I love doing gymnastics. I've been to three world championships. I have gold medals from two of them. I've been to the Olympics, have a silver medal, but also have had some untimely injuries. After I had my kids, I was like, I want to get back in shape again. So I started conditioning a little bit. During the pandemic, the gym was closed. I started trying some of the skills that I used to be able to do. I wanted to do better and be better and get stronger. And then it got to the point where I was like, hmm, I should try flipping, see how that feels. Oh, that was pretty good. Gymnastics is my family's life. I mean, we, we are all in the gym. My dad's, well, I brought him out of retirement, essentially, to, to coach me again. There it is. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> she still has something else to give, not just let's go back to what we used to do. No, we're going to push the boundaries. This is not about getting her old skills back and being complacent with that. This is about getting new skills and pushing the boundaries of female gymnastics. I was a little skeptical at first, but seeing her do all of these skills, I think her potential is insanely high. 
training is a lot different these days. I'm training three days a week with gymnastics and then just doing conditioning days in between, which is totally different than when I was younger. I was training six days a week. You're so fast. <laughs> I feel like I'm a better mom because I take the time to do something for myself and they can see me working hard for something. That's a really great example. I feel like I'm setting for them. My goals, it's a loaded question. If I could make the Tokyo Olympics, that would be incredible. But to just be in the mix would be amazing. If Chelsea makes the USA Women's Olympic team, she'd be the oldest gymnast in nearly 70 years. Still ahead, one reason why a vaccine will not stop the COVID-19 pandemic right away. Plus, a signal from the solar system could finally answer this age-old question. Does life exist beyond our planet? The CDC says a vaccine for coronavirus won't be widely available till mid or late 2021. President Trump calls him confused and says the vaccine will be ready for widespread distribution by the end of the year. Experts disagree. So where do we stand? Well, out of the 170 vaccines in development, 35 have been approved for clinical human trials. Out of those, nine have advanced into the final stage trials known as phase three. These large-scale trials usually enroll 30,000 people and help determine if the vaccine is safe and effective. The U.S. invested $10 billion in the hopes of approving a safe and effective vaccine in less than a year. But approval is not the final challenge. Getting a high enough percentage of the population safely vaccinated is key. In a Gallup poll last month, 35% of Americans said they wouldn't take an FDA-approved COVID vaccine, even if it were free. Next, that surface can reach 900 degrees. So why are scientists looking for signs of life on the hottest planet? Finally, an extraordinary find in the clouds of Venus, possible signs of life. Covered in volcanoes, its surface can reach 900 degrees, making it the hottest planet in our solar system, and also making the idea of life there seem absurd. But life in the clouds could be another story. Scientists detected a gas called phosphine, a gas that they say could only be made by life, whether human or microbe. The tentative detection of phosphine is likely to fuel calls for return to Venus. NASA's last probe of the planet was back in 1989, and a new mission could send a spacecraft to swoop through the clouds and gather gas and particles to bring back to Earth. And maybe get us closer to answering the question, does life exist beyond our planet? That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you next week.